0: Again, this is another bucket list moment here on The High Wire. When we listen to Tony Fauci saying he brought the draconian measures, when he was choosing our drugs for us, what we could use, what we couldn't use, when he was locking us down and destroying our careers, when he was masking our children and messing with their psyche and turning them into hypochondriacs that were afraid to breathe the air, all of these decisions being made from some little office so far away from a patient's bed, uh, it's hard to describe perhaps we would want to listen to as the ICUs were being overrun, as he described, one of the world's greatest, most published ICU doctors in the world. That's who I want to talk to. That's who I want to talk to. I'm talking about Dr. Paul Merrick. He was in the middle of it. We've heard from uh, the legal team that's fighting for the patients that were unable to get the care that they wanted. How about the doctors that wanted to give the care that could save lives and they were thwarted? by what, a government, by a mandate, by a money-grubbing you know, hospital system. I'm going to ask all of those questions of maybe one of the most important voices in the world who has had no fear. This is Dr. Paul Merrick in front of Senator Ron Johnson's second opinion hearing. I think uh, it was the pinnacle and most powerful moment of that hearing. Take a look at this.
1: What's happening now is completely unprecedented in the history of medicine and across the world. We have the federal government, we have state agencies and hospitals telling doctors how to practice medicine. They're interfering with the sacred patient-physician relationship. They are telling doctors to be doctors. So I can tell you what happened to me. So I was using our protocol to treat critically ill patients in the ICU with a whole host of repurposed drugs. I then, this is a memo, this is a memo sent to the entire healthcare system, but they targeted me personally. And what did this memo say? This said I can use remdesivir, and then I will quote. There was an added section. Do not endorse section, which includes medications that may cause harm and efficacy is not supported in peer-reviewed published RCTs. These medications will not be verified or dispensed for the prevention or treatment of COVID. This list includes ivermectin, bicalutamide, etopsicide, fluvoxamine, dutesteride, and finasteride. And then just to stick it to me, they added ascorbic acid.
2: <laughs> <laughs> Otherwise healthcare known as the system
1: was vitamins. effectively That's preventing vitamins. me treating my patients according to my best clinical judgment. And then how did this progress? I objected. So the first week I was in the ICU, I didn't know what to do. What was I to do? My hands were tied. As a clinician for the first time in my entire career, I could not be a doctor. I could not treat patients the way I had to be to treat patients. I had seven COVID patients, including a 31-year-old woman. I was not allowed to treat these people. I had to stand by idly. I had to stand by idly watching these people die. I then tried to sue the system, and you know what they did? They did something called peer sham review. It is a disgusting and evil concept. They then accused me of seven most outrageous crimes that I had committed and that I was such a severe threat to the safety of patients, they immediately suspended my hospital privileges because I possessed and posed such an outright threat to these patients, ignoring the fact that under my care the mortality was 50 percent, those of my colleagues. I then went on through the sham peer review, I went to a kangaroo court where they continued this and the end result was I lost my hospital privilege and was reported to the National Practitioner Data Bank. So here I was standing up for patients' rights, and this hospital, this evil hospital, ended my medical career. So that's what they do. It's an outright outrage, it's evil to the core.
0: Uh, Powerful emotional testimony. It is my honor and pleasure to be joined now by Dr. Paul Merrick. Paul. Thank
1: you, Dale to be here
0: all right it's good to have you here all right so you saw uh, we've got attorneys now fighting hospitals going up against hospitals for really wrongful death of patients you're inside of that system and so I really want to try and understand um, for a doctor
1: inside what the hell
0: happened here
1: I mean what what happened yeah, so it's a good question. I think the whole system came apart that basically the ability of doctors to do what doctors do is practice bedside medicine at the bedside with their best clinical judgment. That was completely usurped. Basically, you were forced to be a follower, you had to follow the narrative, you had to follow the NIH guidelines, you had to follow the hospital policy. And you know, traditionally doctors look at their patients, they interact with their patients, and they decide on what's the best medication for their patient. Mm-hmm. It's very specific and it's very personalized because no patient is the same. They did not want that. They wanted standard cookie book NIH guidelines. And you touched on this this morning. So when you are hospitalized, the treatment is clear. It's absolutely clear and you will not deviate You will get remdesivir, although we know remdesivir increases your risk of failure, renal failure 20-fold, and what they didn't say, it increases your risk of death. You will get remdesivir and low-dose dexamethasone. If you have the audacity, like I was trying to do, be a real doctor, using FDA-approved off-label drugs that have been proven, proven to be of benefit in COVID, basically what I was done is I was shut out. The hospital, this is Centauri Norfolk Hospital, had a hospital system-wide policy prohibiting me prohibiting me from practicing medicine and from treating my patients the way I thought best and forcing me to use Remdesivir. And obviously I couldn't deal with it because that that's, it led to murder and that's not what doctors are there for. Right. They're there to advocate for their patients do what's best for their patients. And so unfortunately, that system is completely broken. That um, We have the NIH, the CDC, the federal government dictating how doctors practice medicine. We see this with a vaccine, we see this with remdesivir, we see this with banning early effective treatment. If we had, as you mentioned, if we had treated patients earlier with effective treatment, we would have prevented patients progressing, we would have prevented patients going to hospital, we would have prevented patients going to the ICU, and we would have prevented patients dying. But that went against the narrative. The narrative was a, a, a shot in every arm and remdesivir. And because of this outrage, it's a moral and ethical and medical and humanitarian outrage, hundreds of thousands if not millions of patients have died in this country. And as you you correct, this force was led by Fauci. Fauci has never treated a COVID patient in his entire life. He has become the the world speaker on the treatment of COVID, yet he never treated a patient himself. It's imagine if you had a flight instructor or a flight um, company or FAA. Who was instructing other pilots to fly but could not fly himself. Wow. That's what we were basically dealing with. And you know, we've led it's led into this tyrannical situation and it's unfortunate because thousands of hundreds of thousands of patients have died yeah. needlessly. And then as you obviously as you know the the the, the parallel worst part of this is anybody who has voiced any objection or any concern or or raised the possibility that there may be alternative therapy is considered a disseminator of misinformation and classified as a domestic terrorist. Yet indeed they are the ones, they are the ones promoting the misinformation. So essentially what has happened, science has been decapitated. Because science is based on the exchange of information. We have a discussion. We look at each other's data. We discuss the data. Yeah. We come up with some plan. But essentially what the federal government and the agencies have done, they have decapitated science. So the science is, as Fauci says it is, follow the science. It's his science. It's really right. his opinion of what the science is, not the true science.
0: When. And so beautifully put and so horrific and terrifying especially when it's the one thing as I said um, earlier is, is the one thing we've celebrated in the United States of America is we don't have a socialized medical system. We are not just a cookie cutter. We do it how the government says it is the practice of medicine and the fact that every the greatest doctors in the world all have come here because this is where they can, you know, take their experiments further. This is where they can look and start working on new pathways to health. And by the way, we have freedom of choice here. If I'm choosing my doctors, then I get to go to the doctor that's using ivermectin or whatever it is. I mean I can say look at your success record and in this case you had a fifty percent reduction in the you know death that was happening in your field ICU and I want to be clear about this too you're not seeing those early patients when we talk about Zelenko and these other guys a lot of the success of the treatments they were using was early treatment right early treatment was key by the time you're getting them they're moving into this severe space and so how is it I mean I would have to imagine given that you are I think the second most published ICU doctor in the history of medicine okay you're not just any ICU doctor you're a world leader in your field you are showing a 50% reduction in death, which you would think. This is, I mean, for all of us out there going, it just can't be true, Dell. How is it the hospital isn't going, you who over here send us money? Look at, we've got the biggest star. He's figured it out. He's reducing death in the ICU in the most serious, you know, in, in the most serious cases. And you must be high up. I'm thinking you must know everybody in charge of your hospital. You're freaking Dr. Paul Merrick. What? Are we? Am I just delusional? Am I living in a fairy tale of how medicine works? What the standing of someone in your stature has in a hospital system like the one you worked in? So you're
1: right. We 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 live in a system that is corrupt. The hospital system is corrupt. Hospitals have become dangerous places for sick people, and it's a terrible thing for me, for having practiced hospital medicine for over 35 years, for me to actually utter that statement that hospitals in this country have become dangerous places for sick people. And what you say is right, the data I have, and the data was supplied to me directly, directly from Centauri Norfolk Hospital. They're going to claim that it's false because they've lied, they've blatantly lied and continue to lie. But the data I have from Norfolk General Hospital, that when when I was in charge and I was under control, the ICU mortality was 9.8%. Once they started screwing with me and messing with me and uh, prohibiting me doing what I do as a doctor, the mortality in the ICU went up to 22%. It doubled. So we're talking in excess of 300 deaths that I'm aware of. And this is because why I was challenging the narrative. They don't like that. They don't like doctors who speak out. They don't like doctors who look for the truth. They don't like doctors who find fault with the system. And they have a system to get rid of those doctors, and they have a system to destroy those doctors, and they have a system to prevent them practicing medicine ever again. It's called sham peer review. And that's what they did to me, to destroy my career and from preventing me from practicing medicine it is evil in its most fundamental basic concept. And this is what what hospitals do. I don't think that people in this country recognize the power that hospitals have over doctors. They can end their careers, they can ruin their careers, if they interfere with the hospital's ability to make money. Even though I work for a non-profit hospital there's no such thing as non-profit. Their goal their goal is to make as much money as they can, and we know that. We just saw the data on how much money they get if you intubate it, if you put on a ventilator, if you give rem remdesivir. It's absurd.
0: The federal. So, can you do you verify that too? From your experience, we just heard from the attorneys earlier in the in the show that. Upwards of $500,000 is being compensated to the hospital if you move them through the system. If you don't send them home, bring them to the hospital, get them into an ICU, get them on a ventilator, put them on remdesivir. All of those things have bonus, bonuses, including this last one that's slapped on. It's not even an amount. It's literally like an increase of 20% to the overall bill if you use remdesivir. Uh,
1: was that an experience you saw happening in the hospital? Can, so I think you're working? most doctors are clueless. They don't understand what's going on. To be honest, I think they're just lemmings. They follow blindly. They have no integrity, and they just do what they're told to do. Clearly, the hospital administrators are acutely aware of the reimbursement. And it's absolutely true. If you prescribe remdesivir, which, let us reiterate again, is a toxic drug which increases the risk of dying, why would any doctor prescribe such a drug? Well, I mean, it, yeah. it doesn't make any sense. It's a drug which increases your risk of dying and increases your risk of renal failure. Why would any reasonable, compassionate, caring doctor ever prescribe it? But it's on the hospital protocol. Doctors are forced to do it. And hospitals know they get a 20% bonus on top of the whole hospital bill if you prescribe remdesivir. That's absolutely true. Wow. Do you, do you
0: think about it, I mean, when, you, when you've looked at it, you, you've used the words like murder, that the hospitals are the last places you want to go now, does any part of you think this is on purpose, that they're killing people on purpose, or is it, or is it just greed
1: completely out of control? yeah so you know you get to such a fundamental question about humanity and what we are our role as humans on this planet, which is to help others and be good, to be good, honest, sincere, helpful people so i don 't think doctors per se are acutely aware of what 's going on. the hospital administrators are mm. they they are complicit and implicitly involved in this. I don't know what to call it. It's it's, it's it's a program to kill people, not help people. So that they should be held accountable. And obviously they may, may be pressurized by state agencies, and by federal government and by reimbursement. But basically, you you know, when you go to a hospital, you assume you you, you know the hospital has your best interests at heart. That's you know you have a yeah. bill of rights. You imagine, but as we heard, you become a prisoner. You become a prisoner, you lose your rights, and they will do to you whatever they want to do. And that's why my advice is, if you ever get admitted to a hospital, make absolutely sure you have a patient advocate with you all the time. to speak for you when you can't speak, because they will do the most outrageous things to you. So, you know, when, when we look
0: at this and, you know, we've talked about the protocols, you've been involved with FLCCC and, and other groups outspoken about many of the drugs that have been denied the use, you know, ivermectin, hydroxychloroquine, fl- fluca- fluca- fluvoxamine, fl- fluvoxamine uh, all these things. That, vitamin D. and, and Yeah. Can
1: we talk about vitamin D. I mean, yeah. You know, the list of this there's is a, there's a site called Early COVID-19. Uh, there must be 20 or 25 pharmaceutical or nutraceutical compounds that have been proven yeah. proven to be beneficial in the early phase of COVID, including vitamin D. So that Fauci character, apparently he takes vitamin D, but he doesn't want to admit it. Yeah. Vitamin D is such a simple thing to do. Why doesn't the federal government say, hey guys, just take your vitamin D, take yeah. your vitamin D levels? They don't want to do that because they, they want you to get COVID they want you to get sick, they want you to be scared, they want you to get the jab, and they want you to get remdesivir. We are, this is, this is a, you know, Pierre and I say the world's gone mad because none of this makes any sense to any sensible, caring, compassionate human being.
0: You know, I, one of the things, I, I previously was a producer on the CBS talk show The Doctors, which is sort of how I got in the middle of all this. And the beauty of that job was I got to look for the greatest doctors and scientists in the world. In many ways, someone would write in with a condition. No one can figure out what's wrong with me. And then I would do an investigation around the world, find somebody that that's what they're treating. They found a way. And then I got to be like Santa Claus and put these two people together. And I'd say to the doctor, Look, I can show the world what you're doing if you'll give it for free to this patient. And we'd put it together. It was an amazing experience. And a lot of people ask me, What did you learn from the doctors? and I'll tell you because some of I would say this the doctors that that I think if I were to describe what I watched when I went in with my cameras and when we did their stories one healed a girl of a a brain tumor in the middle of her brain and had developed a way to get all the way in using endoscopic tools without touching the brain it was the most it was a miracle before my eyes and others like that using all their own tools having amazing success what I discovered was every time I found myself saying, this is like a Jedi in medicine. This is somebody that is off the charts. If I ever have an issue, this is who I'd go to. Almost every single time, that particular doctor was under threat for his license and not because any patient was against him, but his own peers were writing in and saying i won't work in the same you know uh EOR that, that that doctor's using i want him out of the hospital i don't like how he's doing his medicine it was crazy i was like what the heck does it matter what other doctors i mean when did they get to be a part of the process his patients are being healed and and her and and so i found that where we think and this is the thing that i think you're really bringing to light I would say to people, you know what I learned from the doctors is that we think that the best ideas, we, we think of medicine and science—is like this movie where the greatest, most talented ones that rise to the top and push the envelope, that everyone's like going in their OR to watch what they're doing and Please teach me, help me. NIH is bringing him in. The opposite is the case. Anyone pushing the envelope, anyone really truly doing things that are miraculous and, and having success, find themselves under threat by the establishment that doesn't want to change the way they've been doing this all along. That was my experience across the board. I would say across the board, we are you are lucky if you're getting that advanced science. We're lucky if we get Dr. Paul Merrick treating us in the end mostly you are getting the most base the same system has been used for sixty years and anyone that's doing something spectacular is under threat for for their
1: license so you know what you say is absolutely true in fact there's data to prove it the Institute of Medicine has shown that a major scientific breakthrough that changes lives it takes eighteen years eighteen years before it becomes established as Standard medical. Wow, 18 years. That is, how, and if you're a patient, you die. Right. The, the, the system is inflexible. It doesn't like people who want to challenge the system. It doesn't like innovators. They're seen as troublemakers and they need to be dismissed. And so, you know, it, it, for patients, you, you have to do research, you have to be empowered. You have to take your, your health into your own account. You cannot trust the medical system. Unfortunately, the healthcare system we function under now, you cannot trust it. You have to empower yourselves, you have to do research. You have to figure out what's best for you because the health system will give you false information.
0: I mean it's amazing as I listen to you to think, you know, how many years in the ICU have you spent? Thirty years. Thirty years, you know, obviously there was a time when you really believed in the system you're working in, right? When did that belief really shift for you? Was it just COVID?
1: So you ask a really good question. So I always knew that there was corruption and that big pharma dominated the um, curriculum and maybe I was very late for my eyes to be opened, but clearly COVID has shone a bright light, a bright light on the absolute corruption in medicine and to be honest it's it's probably goes back 20 or 30 years that you know i've realized now that almost everything i've been taught in medical school is wrong wow i have to unlearn everything i've been taught because it's dominated by pharma and it's completely and utterly false and it's a fraud I mean most recently I've been really interested in the statin cholesterol fraud. Mm-hmm. Now, how many people in this country take statins because there's this mistaken belief, and it's a fraud, yeah. that cholesterol and saturated fat cause heart disease. That is a fraud Yeah. and it's perpetrated by big pharma because they want to sell you drugs that you take for the rest of your life. They're not interested in curing your disease, they're interested in Prolonging your disease and your symptoms, we can say the same thing for SSRIs. We can say the same thing for diabetic medication, the same thing for proton pump inhibitors. Yeah. So I have had to unlearn everything I taught at was taught at medical school because it's false, and we have been corrupted. And unfortunately, most doctors just don't want to see this. I, I don't think they. And it's, it's, a, it's a really interesting question, why don't they see the corruption? Why don't they see the false medicine that they're practicing? Maybe it's because they're too scared to admit what they've been doing for the last 20 years is wrong, and they just follow. Maybe they're just not interested. Maybe they're just too believing in the medical system. I used to believe in what I read in the medical journals. I used to believe the New England Journal of Medicine. I thought it came from heaven. It was the absolute truth. I now know that it's false. It's fabricated. It's fraudulent. I mean, even look at the remdesivir study published in New England Journal. We know that they committed scientific misconduct. In that remdesivir study, you may not know this. No. They changed the endpoint. What they did, Tony Fauci didn't say this in the White House. They unblinded the study halfway. It was not going to reach the predetermined endpoints. The endpoints were death and intubation and being on a ventilator. They realized the study would fail. So what did they do? They changed the endpoint to some nebulous endpoint of time to recovery. And since they knew which patients were unblinded, they discharged them early. It's a fabricated, fraudulent study. Wow. based on this, and the New England Journal knew this, the so, FDA... So
0: just to be clear, so that I understand this, they essentially had a study where they were going to show we have a reduction in death and ventilators like and an extreme yes. results. They were not having that result. They weren't showing it was doing that. So they went in, unblinded everybody like, and, and so we did the placebo group. They got to see everything and then started moving people in and out of the study to get the result and they couldn't say we reduced death, we, re- we reduced severe um, results. Instead they just said we shortened the time you were in the hospital. They, they came up with some
1: different that's arbitrary exactly what they showed wow if you go back and look at their fraudulent study that's what they showed right that was a manipulated endpoint by tony fauci
0: who is in a regulatory agency that is supposed to be unbiased and simply calling it like he sees it, calling it like they see it. He is personally at the NIH involved in this study and manipulating it. And, and by the way, we were seeing similarly bad results in every other study being done around the world. The exact opposite of, of ivermectin, hydroxychloroquine, where you just have this massive ocean of brilliant studies showing between 50%, 75% reductions when it comes to ivermectin in, in, in death and, and severe um, covid and yet, the NIH finally gets involved in studies in in the the um, and and we see the opposite. Their studies are the only ones that show there's a deleterious effect. In this case, they're the only studies that show that remdesivir works. Now, I want to get to the point because this isn't your first rodeo. Uh, you you know found yourself in the middle of this COVID thing, and perhaps it was the final straw on your career at the hospital. But there is a is a I think almost a bigger issue, which is my understanding is the is the leading cause of death in hospitals in, in america or you know one or two is sepsis dying of sepsis and so many 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 people find their loved ones this is how they've died in the hospital um tell me about this what you discovered um as as a potential cure for one of the leading causes of death as we know it in hospitals so
1: this was my introduction to the corruption you know i thought if you made a, a, an observation which saved people's lives that would be important. But as we'll see, people didn't like that. That goes against the narrative.
0: So you're right. Oh, well, don't get to the ending of this story first. No, Let's we're not li-
1: <laughs> start. We start at the beginning. Yes. So you're right. You know, sepsis, which is an infection. Basically, people don't know what sepsis is. And yeah. When you have an infection, which then spreads to the rest of the body, we call that sepsis. Sepsis involves about 40 million people on this planet every year, 40 million of which about 10 million die. So we're talking about one of the most important diseases of humanity. Yeah. And the standard treatment is to give antibiotics and that's it. So what happened this goes back to 2016. I had a patient in the ICU who was dying. And so you know as a physician, you want to do whatever you can to help that patient. That's what we meant to do. Yeah. That's what we trained to do. That's what my South African training has led me to do. You can't just say, okay, she's going to die. You say, well, what can I do to help this patient? So I had previously read a paper by Dr. Fowler on the use of vitamin C for sepsis. And I thought, you know what? I'm going to try it. What do I have to lose? Right. What do I have to lose? This is a safe medication. It's vitamin C. I mean, it, um, she's going yeah. to die. Let me give it to her. So I read up Ready's paper. I contacted the pharmacy. We gave this patient intravenous vitamin C. My expectation is she wouldn't survive. When I came back the next morning, I was completely dumbstruck, because she was in multi-organ failure. She was on a ventilator, in renal failure. The next morning, she was off drugs that supported blood pressure. We got her off the ventilator, her kidney function had improved. And this lady, who was certainly would have died, there's no question, walked out of the ICU three days later. No way. So I said to you, like what you just said. No way, how is that possible? So you know, when you have an experience like that, you say, wow, that's pretty cool, I'm going to do it again. And I did it again, and I did it again, and I did it again, and we saw the the same effect. And then, you know what, our nurses noticed, hey, you know what, and you know, the nurses are the patient's advocates, they're there to do the best for the patient. If the nurse knows something is true, they're going to tell you. And the nurses were telling me, hey, what's going on here? These patients are getting out of, of presses early. So they
0: were so used to seeing these people dying that it just became obvious, like, what's going on? All of a sudden, people aren't dying of sepsis anymore. Something that we're, we're having to carry their bodies out of here. We're not carrying their bodies out anymore. What's going on?
1: Yeah, so the nurses were my strongest advocates because they were looking after the patient. They could see this dramatic change. Our use of renal replacement therapy for people in renal failure decreased. So the nurses thought this was astonishing. So what I was actually going to do is a randomized study in which I would randomize some patients to vitamin C and some to placebo. The nurses said, no, we object. You can't do that. How can you give a patient a placebo when you actually have a treatment that can save their life?
0: They literally were like, it would be unethical for us to basically kill people to prove that this is exactly. working because we're so sure that it's working. Now, to be clear was it just vitamin C by itself or was there yes. a,
1: a, a protocol? That yes, yeah, so that's a good question. So what I did is I combined the vitamin C with thiamine uh, I chose thiamine for various reasons which may not have been valid then but actually seems just by coincidence to be a big, a big uh, a good choice because you need thiamine for energy metabolism Thiamine is involved in your mitochondria and making energy. And many patients are thiamine deficient. I had added the thiamine for another reason, but it was just fortuitous that it was a good choice. Mm. And I added corticosteroids because there's um, synergistic action between corticosteroids and vitamin C. In fact, subsequently after after we, we, we did the study, which I'll tell you about, we actually went to the lab at ODU, and we actually proved in the lab, in a lab model, that vitamin C and corticosteroids were synergistic in protecting cells against bacterial toxins.
0: Wow. All right. So in this situation, you're not attacked by the hospital. The hospital's pretty excited about it. Uh, We have a video discussing this massive success and your discovery. Folks, look at how this was treated in the immediate moment. Uh, where the hospital recognizes, oh my God, we have a hero here. Um, this is incredible, take a look at this.
3: Her daughter found her in the
4: bed unresponsive and she called the ambulance and that's when she went in.
1: We had a young woman who was dying from overwhelming sepsis.
2: She just had all kind of machines and tubes going. Maxed out on, on several pressers.
1: This was a woman who was certainly going to die. The tunnel dialysis. So what Dr. Merrick has done has taken three readily available agents, steroid, glucocorticoid, vitamin C, and thiamine, and put them together in a special combination. A very simple yet elegant research protocol. We gave it to the patient, and it worked.
2: We thought it had to be a fluke, but then we started having patient after patient after patient that just had these remarkable results. They would be at death's door and 12 hours later they would be like 50% better. We literally have seen patients walk out of here we did not think would leave.
1: Sepsis is a devastating disease and over 250,000 patients a year die in the United States and it's estimated over 8 million worldwide. The incidence is increasing, so obviously it's an important disease. This combination of therapy appears to cure severe sepsis and septic shock. My lab, my team and I were
2: delighted to confirm his findings. We tried vitamin C alone, nothing happened. We tried hydrocortisone alone and nothing happened. And we put
1: them together and it completely restored the barrier function of the cell. I have been working in the field of endothelial cell biology for 30 years. And this is the first time that we see a treatment that works both in the clinic and in the lab. And obviously his sepsis is under control. The accomplishments were quite inspiring. Uh, Significant decrease in the length of stay,
4: significant improvement in reducing the mortality of those patients.
2: Well this data is preliminary data. It's not been subject to a randomized controlled study. And yet here at Norfolk General, it was deemed to be so effective with such little side effect that it was unethical not to offer this to patients here. We think it's extremely safe
1: with really no adverse effects and it has the potential to save thousands of lives. Whatever you did, it worked because my baby's still here. <laughs>
0: Well, we're looking at right here, folks, is such an important story. This isn't even COVID. This is the leading cause of death in the world. And the idea that you potentially have the cure, a way to keep this from happening for tens of millions of people across the planet, Uh, the leading cause of death in hospitals here in America, but Africa, India, it's incredible how many innocent people are dying here. You have a cure and it's simple, it's cheap it's available and once again I mean we're we're it it, in some ways that we're getting too used to this story but I want you to listen to this one you know tear back that leather that is around your heart right now and think about how messed up this system is as we get deeper into this conversation so uh, Paul when we talk about this protocol there's a lot of people as we know one of the leading cause if not the leading cause of death in hospitals so for people who have a loved one that maybe are being rushed in the hospital they find out that it is sepsis and they want to recommend to the doctor what is what is the actual protocol that they need to know? Yeah
1: so it's actually not complicated I think the most important concept is early treatment okay because as we said sepsis is very time sensitive and you don't want to delay so what we recommend is that you start immediately in the ED emergency department, so if you think a patient is septic and you're going to give them antibiotics, then I would start them on the protocol. And if it turns out that they don't have sepsis, well, you've lost nothing. But if you've missed it, you've missed that window of opportunity. Okay. And I think that's really the message for doctors is that this is time sensitive. You don't need to do a whole host of special tests. So what you need to do is treat them early. And vitamin C is very simple to give. The pharmacy can prepare it very simply. So
0: what are the dosages?
1: Yeah, so what you want to do is the vitamin C is the most important out of the whole cocktail and you want to start this early. So you the, the dose is 1.5 grams of vitamin C has to be given intravenously in a little mini bag you know, infused over 20 minutes. Okay. And so that they can start that in the emergency department or they can start that immediately in the ICU. Now, is that
0: something every hospital has in its, like, is that around? Like, if if I ask for vitamin C, the hospital
1: has that? There's no reason that a hospital shouldn't have intravenous (laughs) vitamin C. It used to be used for intravenous nutrition, but now it's quite commonly used, and there's no reason a hospital can't get hold of intravenous vitamin C and have it on their formulary. Okay. And so they should have it available, they should have it in the emergency department. So it's timely administration is really important. One of the unanswered questions is that if treatment is delayed, do you need a higher dose? Mm -hmm. And that question I really can't answer, we need to do more studies. But what I can tell you is that if if patients come in early and they treat it early when they come to the emergency department. 1.5 1.5 grams every six hours is what works. And okay. then we combine that with thiamine, 200 milligrams intravenously every, every 12 hours. And the thiamine, I originally added it because I thought it would limit so-called toxicity of vitamin C, mm-hmm. but that was somewhat erroneous. And thiamine is very good for sepsis. Okay. And then the, the third piece is hydrocortisone. This is a corticosteroid which is often used for sepsis it down-regulates the inflammation, it works very well with vitamin C, and so the dose is 50 milligrams every six hours. So this is not a complicated protocol. Um, So, you know, together with antibiotics, so, you know, you give early antibiotics, which is the key to treatment, together with early institution of this protocol. And, you know, I think it's not complicated, it's very safe, it's easy to administer, and you know it, it should become more widely available, because you know as we said, sepsis is a deadly disease, mm-hmm. and you want to do what you can uh, as quickly as you can, and why wait for the disease to progress? You know, rather treat it early before it's progressed.
0: You have a hospital. They're excited. Hey, Paul, let's make a video about this. Let's get it out there, right? Really exciting stuff. You think the world's going to, you know, jump in. And and I know we're going to, you know, we've we've talked about Pierre Corey. He has a similar discussion about going to the Senate with ivermectin and just thinking the world's going to open up their arms. Oh, my God, we've got a cure for one of the leading causes of death in the world. The world doesn't open its arms to you.
1: So, you know, as with ivermectin and hydroxychloroquine and vitamin D and fluvoxamine, the world does not like cheap repurposed drugs. This goes against the agenda. Uh, you know, it's dominated by big pharma that requires expensive drugs that are used, maybe in the US. So there was enormous pushback, enormous pushback. So probably the first um, was the vitamin study. So, you know, it, it, seems, it seems unthinkable that people would design a clinical study, which is designed to fail. It it seems obtuse. It seems immoral. It seems illegal, but we've seen that with COVID. There's no question with COVID. There were studies that were designed specifically to fail. And so the same thing has happened with vitamin C.
0: Well, clearly in the solidarity trial, they used lethal doses, of uh, hydroxychloroquine in that study, whereas everyone that having success at using 400 milligrams a day, 600 milligrams a day, they use 2400 milligrams a day, and in that situation, didn't call you know Vladimir Zelenko, didn't call you, didn't call Didier Rayout who really I think sort of brought this hydroxychloroquine discussion uh, to the forefront. They just go with their own numbers and clearly set out to destroy the success of this product for whatever unknown agenda and similarly you're having these amazing results and they decide to have a study they call you on on how to do it
1: so no so the first one was the vitamins study which was done in australia i was hopeful that it would be i mean i was convinced it would be positive because australians are generally good doctors and so what actually happened is they did the study and it was being presented in belfast in 2020 and what they the Organizers did is they invited me to give the editorial response to them presenting the paper. Mm. It was going to be published in JAMA. But what they did is they would not give me access to the paper. They would not give me the paper to analyze. So I had to do an editorial response to a study, but they would not give me the study. Um, this is JAMA and the organizers. I mean, this is called a scientific ambush. I mean, I didn't realize what was coming. This I was going to ask you, so you're invited. Hey,
0: Paul, we've got this great study we've done out of Australia, the vitamin study, looking at the vitamin C protocol. We'd love for you to be there so you can make some comments about it. And you're thinking, great, this is finally getting traction, right? The, the world's going to see what I know to be true.
1: Yeah, so, I mean, I was convinced it would be positive. Firstly, why would they invite me? And if they did the study properly, which I thought they would have done, you know, it was going to be positive. So. You know, it's at this time that, I, you know, Pierre and I got together. You know, I had never met Pierre before. Pierre we had, Corey, we're Pierre talking Corey, about. Pierre yep. Corey, you know. So this is how our history in dealing with this corruption goes back. So Pierre had been using vitamin C. He had communicated with me and he had great success with vitamin C. So he was excited that vitamins was being presented. Yeah. So he actually came with me to Belfast. It was the first time I actually met Pierre. Wow. He was in Belfast and then the bottom fell out of the tank okay so
0: hold on one second because we have a video of of this event i want to play at what point do you know by the time you get there and you're going to be up on the stage prior to being up on the stage there did it become clear to you that this was a this is a hit piece that this this study so they'd handed to you what 24 hours so ahead of time the day
1: before which is like 16 hours before i was actually meant to present they gave me a copy of the paper to present it in JAMA. I mean, in terms about being unprofessional, being it, it basically was a scientific and academic ambush. I mean, you just don't treat people that way. And obviously the paper was negative, and it was clear why it was negative, and it was clear why they wanted to hide it from me. But they didn't give me um, you know, enough time to prepare a response. So obviously I was angry, and Pierre was angry all right and i think that's what consolidated our great friendship okay we'll
0: get into that in a second folks what you're about to watch i want to just put this into some context you have again we've we have told this story before here and if this is your first time watching the high wire go back and watch other interviews with pierre corey and robert malone and and multiple other geared and bosch you're going to see a recurring theme here but I want you to step into your humanity here because this is an amazing story you have Dr. Paul Merrick has found this brilliant cure for sepsis so effective no nurse will even allow him to do a randomized control trial inside of their hospital cuz they're not going to be witness to unethical murder that is the success level you just saw one of the the you know lab uh technicians saying i'd never seen anything like this we were seeing it right before our eyes this isn't a, a miracle it's happening it's real it's science Okay, this, you know, he's trying to, Paul's trying to get the word out to the world. We can save millions and millions of people. He gets a call, come on down, Paul. We, we got another study, a big study, the randomized control study that your nurses were afraid to do because of their ethical issue. And you get there 24 hours ahead of time. You finally see that you have been set up. All the programs have your name on it. You're going to be on the stage. And you now know that I am going to be filleted. My you know greatest discovery. And forget about the personal side of this. Imagine how many lives are about to be lost. You remember the Andrew Hill uh you know meeting that we saw with Tess Laurie. This is one of those moments. Uh, you can see the body language when we just show you. This is just a few of the excerpts from this meeting. Watch Dr. Merrick. Imagine yourself in this position as you're sitting on the stage knowing what's about to happen. Take a look at this.
3: Welcome to the uh, next session of uh, Critical Care Reviews, where we're going to uh, again live stream across the world uh, the results of the vitamins trial. Um, We're honored uh, to have the results, and we're also honored to have Paul Marek here. And with that, I will um, hand over to uh, Tomoko Fuji, who's going to give us the results for the first time of the vitamins trial.
2: Hydrocortisone was administered within 9 hours and vitamin C was administered within 12 hours after meeting the eligibility criteria of septic shock. So, primary outcome. In the control group, time alive and free of vasopressor after day 7 was 124.6 hours. In the intervention group, it was 122.1 hours. The median of all pair differences was minus 0.6 hours, and there was no statistically significant difference. When we adjusted for site and baseline balance, which was navigated by p-value less than 0.2, again, there was no difference in the two groups.
4: If we if were to await further trials to perhaps support Dr. Marek's theory about this combination therapy, what do we do in the meantime? Do we use the TRIO as a just-in-case measure, as a measure of last resort, um, given that we haven't shown it has any survival benefit?
2: Maybe as we usually do, um, we will will wait for the results uh, for many ongoing trials examining the effect of combination therapy, and also there are many trials that are ongoing to examine the effect of more high-dose vitamin C uh, therapy. So I think we should wait until seeing those And Paul, you can sit
3: there as well. My question
1: is to you. If your daughter was in the ICU dying of septic shock, would you deny her a therapy that we know, we know absolutely for a fact is safe, And that may potentially save her life. That's the question you need to ask. There are no downsides. There are absolutely no downsides. The only downside is you may save the patient's life. To deny it, I think, is uh, unacceptable. And then that's just the way it is. The problem with the ongoing trials, and I have severe reservations about these trials. I was never consulted on any of them because I was told I would telepathically, let me say that, telepathically alter the outcome of the study. So I was never consulted on any of these studies. And I am fearful that the problems with this study are going to be replicated. If you're going to do a randomized study, you better be sure it's well designed and it replicates world, real-life world experience. So when it's your daughter dying in the ICU, think about it.
3: So I'm going to take uh, a couple of the suggested uh, people who have used it. Dr. Merrick referred to uh, my work, which is about to be published next month. Um,
4: And just on this timing issue, so uh, I think it's important because you clarified time from eligibility, which means that you met all the criteria, which even required a few hours of pressers, if I recall. I think I heard that. Um, You know, what we found in our data, because Paul referred to it, is that we saw no benefit after about 12 hours from presentation. So all of the benefit was early administration, and we measured it from ED triage time. So as soon as that patient came with some complaint that led to septic shock, that's where our clock started. And when I designed my trial, it, it never even occurred to me to include someone who would be as much as 24 hours, those are medians that you're presenting. So again, I, I don't want to hop on the bandwagon here, but the timing is, is just, um, I'm a little confused, and so Dr. Marek presented that table showing all these other trials, and I want to commend this meeting. This is a great meeting, listening to trialists and hearing the conduct of clinical trials and the challenges and some of the nuances, and some of the achievements. I mean, those trials that were presented yesterday, when you see how quickly they got to the intervention, it's remarkable. In Africa, African children, hundreds of patients, they're all treated within six hours. Can maybe the trialists speak as to why this trial diverged from all the other trials. This is critical care, right? So critical illness, multi-organ dysfunction—that's the pathway to death. The delays seem a little bit odd in the design, and so I just want to say because our, our data that's going to be presented really shows that the time thing is, is just a major variable. I mean, after 12 hours from presentation, we just—we
3: don't see it altering outcomes. So who thinks we need more trials of vitamin C to answer the question if it changes outcome? Okay, that's good. Next question, who would treat their nearest and dearest if they were dying uh, of sepsis with the, the, the uh, um, Marik intervention? So, interesting.
0: Boy, is that interesting. And I have to say, I'm losing more and more faith every day in doctors. And when you see that result, I don't know, quarter to one-third of the audience would rather let their loved one die because we don't have any other treatment than to take the risk Paul Merrick is talking about the only risk being you might have some success because vitamin C is inert so folks for all of you married or living with a doctor and that's how they're gonna vote I'm sorry watch out for yourself Uh, obviously we've got to figure out how we're training these doctors Uh, but an amazing moment and instead of sort of you know, dragging Paul through it, I actually wanted to invite Pierre Corey into this conversation. Uh, we reached out last minute. I understand he has a few minutes. He's going to join us now uh, via um, satellite. Here we go. And, uh, you know, Pierre, I, I've obviously had moments to see you speak and be around you. That's about the most measured I've ever seen you. I mean, that was incredible. That's incredible how you laid that out. But what was it like to have to sit in that audience when, you know, you're a passionate guy, you also were doing your own studies. You saw Merrick's work. You're doing your own studies with vitamin C. They're amazing, right? And then you go with him to say, man, let me support you. Let me be there. Where, again, this, you've, I mean, you keep being in these moments. You've been at the Senate hearings. You did ivermectin. But this is, this is even before that. You go to this meeting thinking, this is it. We can save millions of people to sit and watch him going through this hit job with this study, what was that like in, in your experience and what you know, watching it?
4: Well, I I would start Dell with what it's like now. I just had to watch that. And I it's like PTSD. I, I was literally fidgeting in my chair. I wanted to scream because it's it was really tragic what happened and you know when 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 paul and i planned to go i mean it was really to go i wouldn't say celebrate but we were so optimistic and so looking forward to changing the trajectory of sepsis i mean really paul had discovered and identified a profoundly life-saving therapy and and i know that many other people know that and but that's not what happened you know um yeah you know when you talk about how maybe measured i was in my comments uh, there was a warning before the session started the discussion by the moderator saying that he knows that this is an emotionally charged issue and he asked everyone for calm and no vitriol and so uh, you know I, I adopted a rather inquisitive approach like why did you do this when i knew exactly actually at the time Dell, i i made the same mistake i made again in, in early COVID. is i thought I thought the trialists were ignorant and stupid, or, or let's just use the word ignorant. I thought that they had designed the trial because they didn't understand the time sensitivity of an intervention in a medical emergency. And, and to give them the benefit of ignorance rather than malevolence, uh, I made that mistake again. You know, when I made that mistake again, it was in March of 2020 when I heard that the FDA was restricting hydroxychloroquine to the hospital. Mm. I said to myself, gee, that seems awfully ignorant. Why would you give a potential antiviral, you know, 10 days into the disease? And so every time, you know, my ne- my naivete is, thinks that a- an action done by either trialists or journals or agencies is ignorant, um, I've been constantly disproven that it's not. It's quite malevolent. And I don't know who designed that trial, but I, I gotta tell you, if you look back at the history of vitamin D, and now the history of vitamin C since that meeting, you see a uh, medical literature polluted with absurdly designed trials, which are designed to fail, designed to sh- show no benefit. Pharma attacks vitamins, any natural supplements, any non-obscene profit-producing intervention. It gets destroyed in the medical literature, and it's like Paul said. I mean, science is—it's—it's—it's it's, it's just been rot- rotted to the core by these influences. I, I think there are great scientists, there are great doctors. The, the, the problem that you mentioned also on this show is that unfortunately there are so many doctors practicing in a rotten system who have no awareness that it was rotten and that was me that was me up until i would say it started at belfast my awakening started in belfast mm-hmm. and then covid was like a master class in the corruption uh,
0: paul so how was this study designed i mean i i know that you know we see in that video uh, Dr. Corey gets up and talks about like this sort of timing issue. I know one of the big hydroxychloroquine studies that uh, Anthony Fauci pointed to was, was in veterans. And when we looked at that study, they were like on their deathbed. It was like the last measure being used when everyone was saying early treatment is obviously with hydroxychloroquine, especially if you're going to have success, the earlier you treated upon diagnosis, let's get this in there. We also knew that the disease within five days, we started learning, had done all of was damaged and now you're just dealing with sequela so in this situation is it similar was the timing of the use of this
1: what you was that the issue that you had with with the, the yeah. study so out of all diseases we know out of every single disease we know sepsis is the most time-sensitive disease it's absolutely time-sensitive so imagine if you went to a hospital in septic shock with a bacterial pneumonia and at risk of dying and the doctor said you know what We're not going to give you antibiotics now. We're going to wait until tomorrow. Right. We're going to wait until tomorrow because it's not important to treat you. That's exactly what they did. In this study, they haven't, they never told us the time delay. We know that it was at least from the time they were admitted to hospital to the time they got the first dose of vitamin C, at least 18 hours. Wow. We don't really know the date, the dose, the The duration because they won't share it with us because they know they made a mistake. But we know they waited at least 22 hours before, sorry, they waited at least 18 hours before they got the first dose. And you know, Pierre, Pierre has done some really good data showing that it's a very time sensitive disease. And if you look at the successful vitamin C studies, they're all given within 10 hours, preferably six hours. So as Pierre said, whether this was just stupidity and bad thinking or was done on design, the study was destined to fail.
0: When I thought about this, and I've always thought of sepsis as like blood poisoning, like it's running throughout my body. I thought this would be the case of imagine your child is bit by a rattlesnake or a cobra, depending on where you live. You rush them to the hospital and they say, you know what, we're doing a trial right now. And in our trial, we are not going to give the antidote for the toxic venom running through their veins right now that's infecting your blood, moving through your body for 18 hours. Like no one would do that. So when you explain this, I mean, that is what sepsis, sepsis is moving so quickly. It's as though you are, you know, you're poisoned, right? You're, they are dying of toxic poisoning, uh, systemically through the body. The idea that they're saying like 12 hours after they're only going to begin looking at 12 hours, I think after they've sort of Diagnosed it. How, who knows how long it took to diagnosis? All of those things are the hours you're talking about. You're saying it looks like at least 18 hours that they waited. And once again, just like this solidarity trial, I would say this: not only are they inept, not only are they inept, not only is this study a fraud and a disaster. I believe these people clearly murdered people to make a point. These studies are being done in a way you would never make someone in septic shock wait that long for anything, except they're going to make them wait that long for vitamin C. You can't tell me that's
4: accidental. Pierre, there's no way that's accidental. There's no way. And, Dell, let me make that point. So, you know, it, you just showed what, you know, that initial debate discussion where we critique the fatal flaw of that trial that was well-publicized. A lot of intensivists around the world saw that meeting. A lot of the, the, you know, the world's eyes were on that meeting, at least in our specialty. Now, I've also written editorials, which have been published in high-impact journals, you know, really emphasizing the time sensitivity and the need for early treatment. Guess what, Dell? Since that Vitamins trial was published, we have now, I don't know, maybe five or six large, double-blind, multi-center, rigorous, prospective-controlled trials of IV vitamin C and the merit protocol, which all continue to give it late. So, you know, I, I would have given wow. them a pass on the first one for not understanding the therapy, but when you see the entire medical system and the re- research and infrastructure continue to crank out trials where they're not giving it early, it's it's absurd. And it, it, that's why I'm, I'm calling foul here. Again, don't make me be naive again, Dell, because I've, I've learned a lot.
0: Yeah. All right, when we're talking about you know, this, what is the mechanism? Why is, have you, when you've looked at why is vitamin C working? For yeah. those of us that have brains to recognize that should one of our loved ones find this, uh, themselves in this situation, we're going to say, I want, the, I want the Merrick
1: protocol. Why does it work? Yeah, so it's a fascinating question you answer. What people may not know is that all, all organisms on this planet, all plants, all animals, your dog, your cat, your goat, your cow, make vitamin c except for anthropoid primates and guinea pigs they are the only two species on this planet that do not make vitamin c and vitamin c actually is an essential stress hormone so when your little doggy or cat gets stressed apart from making cortisol it increases secretion of vitamin c it's an essential stress hormone Mm. so humans have lost The evolutionary lost the ability to make vitamin C when they stressed. So the inference is is that whenever the human being is severely stressed, you need to give them vitamin C. Wow. Because it attenuates the cortisol response. But vitamin C is very important. So it's not by accident that most other species make vitamin C. It's the most potent antioxidant. It's antioxidant in the cell, in the mitochondria, in the nucleus. It's a very potent anti-inflammatory drug, working at many different places in the inflammatory cascade. It improves the microcirculation. It has antiviral and antibacterial properties. So, um, it's very important for collagen synthesis, which is what makes tissue. So it has a whole host of very important biological properties. And that's why Animals make it when they stress. That's why, you know, sepsis is less of a problem in in animals because they make vitamin C. Mm. We've genetically lost the ability. We we are mutants. We are vitamin C mm. mutants that have lost the ability. And the obvious inference is that when you stress, take vitamin C. It's safe. It's effective, and it's what every other species d- does. Particularly the stress of septic shock. It it has so many biological properties. I mean, you know, Dr. Katravis showed it in the lab. I mean, he showed it in the lab, but there are multiple studies showing the protective effect of of vitamin C. So it's not like this was some arbitrary thing that we invented that had no biological basis. This is a profound biological basis going back, you know, decades. Um, So um, and it's cheap it's cheap that's why they don't like it and
0: right it's safe i mean this is what's so so tragic about our medical system even when you watch you know ivermectin there are other versions of ivermectin coming out right now with new names and you realize the only reason the the company that made it trashed it was we're not going to make any money on that. We would rather reproduce something else. We are in a tragic, tragic space where there's going to be no. If the cure for cancer, the cure for all of these ailments don't end up being a, a thirty thousand dollar treatment drug, you're never going to find out about it. If some old drug or some old vitamin ends up being what can actually cure us, no one in medicine is ever going to promote that to us. I mean, and and even drugs outside of my drugs that work like we said, ivermectin, hydroxychloroquine. With these drugs that work, once they're off patent, you know, off this, you know, getting the big funds, they literally just—they're burying their own drugs. Like we're, you know, it's like we're starting brand new in every disease now. I mean, it's insane, you know. um, Pierre, I want—what do we go from here? I mean, vitamin C, because you brought this up to me. You know, you said you got to have Paul on. What do we do here? I mean, we're talking about the ability to save millions and millions of people's lives. Uh, are, you know, are, are there any hospitals working with you to do the proper trials? Can you do the proper trials? What's, what's got to happen here? Do we need funding? What, what's the answer?
4: Yeah. So there has been at least a good faith attempt to study uh, vitamin C properly. In fact, I, you know, what Paul talked about, about being wanting to be consulted, he was consulted by, by a group in Belgium, a very leading uh, intensivist, and they tried to do a trial where they assured that patients uh, who arrived in the emergency room got the therapy within six hours. But here's the trick about that. When you enroll people rapidly, what you find is that many of them were not sick enough. And so you need to study large numbers. And so they they enrolled a whole bunch of people. But unfortunately, um, with critical care, there's kind of three categories of patients. Those that are gonna do well anyway, those who are gonna probably die anyway, no matter what you do. And then there's this middle where you can really affect the trajectory. And in that trial, they unfortunately enrolled a lot of people with mild disease. And so it didn't show as large impacts as we would have wanted. I think they're continuing to enroll. So that that's one pathway is that um, a good study is done, which kind of validates what we've been saying. I don't know when and how that's gonna happen. I think the other route is unfortunately maybe similar to the, I wouldn't say we had a playbook with ivermectin. All we did is we identified a positive drug, we had good rationale, tons of great data, and we advocated and disseminated our knowledge. And I think, you know, we're going to want to do that same thing with vitamin C. I mean, we we do have tons of supportive data. You know, you just showed a slide of what are called meta-analyses. I think because of the weakness of the design of those trials, the impact that is measured. And it is shown to be uh, impactful in sepsis if you collect all the trials. I just think it's an underestimate of its true impact. And I think we're gonna take the data we have, the rationale we have, our expertise, experience. And I would also say, at least in some measure of society, the credibility that Paul and our group has gained uh, with what we got right in COVID. And I think hopefully we can take that credibility and, and, you know, start, uh, you know, uh, the awareness of the critical importance of vitamin C. The problem, Dell, is, is the last thing I'm going to say is, you know, when people and, you know, tried to advocate to get treated with, uh, you know, repurposed drugs and COVID and went to the hospitals. I mean, it was a war. You know, there's a lot of uh, negative relationships between the, the, the care providers and the patients and their families. And we don't want We don't want to stir up um, negative feelings or, or destroy therapeutic relationships, but I do think it's going to be patients advocating for their own care and families mm. advocating for their loved ones. And they're going to be facing just like in COVID, they're going to be facing a system doctor who's being taught that vitamin C is nonsense and that it doesn't work. They're going to be made ignorant on it. And and I, I, I again, I don't want these wars. I, I I just want people to listen to people who have expertise, experience, and and, and, and to be willing to be teachable and, and not we're not finding that in the system, but we're going to keep trying.
0: All right. Pierre, I want to thank you for taking the time. I know you're rushing around. Got a lot going on. We're going to have you on very soon to talk about your new book. So I'm looking forward to that. And I'm going to finish up here with, with Dr. Merrick talking about the incredible work FLCCC is doing uh, on treatments of long COVID and all that. I'm going to wrap that up here, but I know you've got to run. So thank you for taking the time. Hey, thanks, Dale. Bye,
1: Paul. Hey, there is a new vitamin C twist to the story. Yeah. Which uh, you may not know. So, I I think you saw from the video clip the positive response from the nurses. Yes. The CEO of the hospital, the dean. Um, So, obviously, things have changed with time. You know, I was forced to quit because they wouldn't let me practice medicine. Mm -hmm. So, now those very people who were supporting me. Those very people who saw the great success those very people are accusing me of fabricating the data
0: oh my god wow so they're going to go against the success they saw in the hospital so they
1: don't want to admit that I was right they don't want to embrace that I was right they see me as the enemy and they will do whatever they can they will do whatever they can to take me down wow that that is the the vicious, evil system that we function under. I mean, the nurses spoke for themselves. Nurses don't lie. And so what they're now saying is that those nurses were misleading. They were mistaken that I was harming patients because that's essentially what they're claiming is that my claim that vitamin C improves the outcome of patients was false and fabricated.
0: All right, well, you know, obviously we have a lot of work to do to to fix this system. But one of the things I wanna just talk about, you know, now, you know, it, people that are watching the show they know they can request, you know, I V, vitamin C. The information's out there. We'll make sure if you are on our newsletter you're gonna get exactly, you know, uh what what those would be in the papers that have been written all of that. That's one of the beauties of what we're doing here. But lastly, you haven't stopped. You haven't given up. You haven't you know, you may have left that hospital, but you and, and Pierre Cory and a team of great scientists and doctors have really been working on this repurpose in this repurposed medicine space. So I wanna ask you, because it's the biggest question we get and one of the things that you know, as we keep talking about all the problems with this vaccination, you know, this, these long-term effects, all the problems, long COVID is an issue for people that got it, whether they're vaccinated or not. Uh, you've been looking at these issues. So um, are there are there ways through? Are you finding some combinations of drugs and vitamins that are effective in these spaces? Yeah,
1: absolutely. So one of the greatest humanitarian crises, apart from sepsis, facing this planet is vaccine injury. Yeah. So, although the CDC and the NIH cannot find no signal of harm, you know, minimally we, we anticipate there may be 10 million, mm. 10 million vaccine injured people in this country. Wow. And we've spoken to many people. They are profoundly injured. Many of these have severe neurological injuries. So, what we've been focusing on is we've been focused on how can we help these folks? Yes. Because the medical system has abandoned them they consider considered a disease that doesn't exist. Mm-hmm. They won't research it, and they will not certainly do studies on how to treat it. Right. So Pierre, myself and our group have put together protocols to treat the vaccine injured and those with long COVID. And it is a treatable disease, let me okay. say this. Right. There's no disease known to man that you can't treat. You can treat it as best you can. Yep. Now, there's no, the, we're not saying we cure every patient, but we can certainly make them better we can certainly make an attempt to cure them and to help them. So there are a whole host of therapies. So we have put together a post-vaccine treatment protocol called iRecover, and it has a number of components. And the most interesting, and (laughs) it's somewhat fortuitous we came across this, is something called intermittent fasting. So intermittent fasting stimulates a process called autophagy, or, as I like to say, autophagy. So the spike protein, as you saw previously, gets into the cell. Yes. So the question is, how do you get rid of the spike? Yeah. So there's no magical detox or some magical formula. The only way you can get rid of this protein in the cell is for the cell to break it down itself. Okay. It's pretty obvious physiology. You have this foreign protein in the cell. So what has to happen is the cell has to break down this folded, misguided protein. And it does it through a process called autophagy. This has evolved over millions of years. Every organism on this planet does autophagy to get rid of bad protein. And there are a number of ways of stimulating autophagy. The most important is intermittent fasting. So it's fascinating. Wow. So we recommend that. But there are a number of other drugs which stimulate autophagy including resveratrol which is a plant um, flavonoid, yep. a product called spermidine which is a polyamine Ivermectin stimulates autophagy. The other benefit of Ivermectin is it actually binds to the spike protein so it helps the host, the pro, the, it helps the process of autophagy get rid of spike. So what we've developed is a protocol to help the cell or help the body heal itself by getting rid of the spike. Wow. And it's a truly fascinating concept. So the treatment protocol is really two-pronged. Two the first is a method to get rid of spike, and the second is to add therapies which minimize the toxicity of the spike. Because spike's a bad piece of shit. Yes. It does some really bad stuff. It does clotting, it does inflammation, it does uh causes bad stuff to the brain Mm -hmm. so the two-pronged approach is get rid of spike and minimize the impact the spike has on the body okay so the caveat to that is not everyone who has been vaccinated is vaccine injured right we get this question a lot okay you know i took the vaccine i shouldn't have done it i have vaccine remorse what can i do so i say well if you're not symptomatic and you have no direct Complications from the vaccine. Just take a healthy diet, adopt a healthy lifestyle, exercise, take a good diet, and just count your odds as being lucky. Yeah. Played Russian roulette and you won. So, uh, so most people can, are, are okay. okay. If you're vaccine injured, I think it's very important you look at these protocols and you proactively do whatever you can to minimize the impact of Spike. Spike is probably the most toxic protein we know. Wow. And you need to do whatever you can to help your body get rid of spike.
0: When so, And the treatment of long COVID from a natural infection versus vaccinated, is it the same
1: protocol? So it's similar. So we know that people who have long COVID continue to have spike. So there's some very good studies done by Dr. Patterson. They looked at white cells, and they found that people with long COVID, up to 16 months after long COVID, still have spike protein in their white cells. Mm. The same thing happens with the vaccine is that for some reason, and the spike is very devious because the it, way it does is, is the, the host can't get rid of spike. So the spike circulates in your cells and continues to do all its badness. So what you have to do is get rid of the spike. So there are some overlaps between long COVID and vaccine injured uh, because it's due to spike. But we find that neurological injuries are a major problem with vaccine injured patients. Much greater preponderance of neuro injuries with vaccine injured as opposed to long COVID. Now,
0: both of these protocols are on your website. Yes,
1: so both are on the website. It's called "I Recover Vaccine," "I Recover Long COVID."
0: Okay, here you are. You're looking at it, folks. Uh, so many of you have been asking. Here it is. If you want something you can do, whether you've been vaccinated or maybe you're suffering from long COVID obviously you know um you know these are going to be varying results we're not here you know saying there's some miracle cure but i would say under the circumstances you know you should really step into this you guys are really thoughtful in looking at ways to handle
1: this um yeah so what i need yeah. is that patients need to empower themselves yes because they're not going to get this information from their doctor right because the doctors don't believe this they think most of these patients are just faking it wow they don't understand it But we do have a glimmer of hope uh, and I'm really excited because FLCC is putting on an educational conference in Florida next month. Great. It's a medical conference to teach physicians and healthcare providers how to deal with spike-related disease. It's, it's, It's unique in its kind because it's a topic that the medical community wants to ignore. Yes. They do not want to tell doctors how to treat the disease because they don't think it exists. So we've put together a host of experts, and we have, you know, 10 lectures, 11 lectures, and we're actually now offering continuing medical education credits. So you know, we're really excited about this because I think, you know, we need clinicians in this country and across the world to understand that this is a real disease. These people are really suffering. They need to be helped, and they need the resources and the support to treat them.
0: It's fantastic. I mean, so many people could just be crushed and, you know, left sitting in a rocking chair in their house somewhere after all you've been through multiple times, you know, through the gauntlet, a a leader in your field and still leading, um, Mm -hmm. Obviously, there's so many things we could talk about today, but I want to just thank you for taking this time and, yeah. and 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 helping us realize that there are brilliant people in medicine, and hopefully many of them watch this show. Many scientists and doctors write in and say, I love how scientific you get, because regular news doesn't do anything for me, but I, I, I see the papers I need to read, I see the work that I need to do, and hopefully your message will get out. And I, I see a brighter future. I think that there is actually, even politics, if we could get the right president elected that could shift in new heads of NIH, you know, Health and Human Services, CDC, maybe, you know, let me ask you that just lastly. If Someone said to you, uh, Dr. Paul Merrick, we'd like you to run the National Institute of Health.
1: Is that something you would do? I would do it because, um, you know, Pierre's goal and my goal is to help as many patients as Mm. we have. We have no financial interest. We have no stock in any, in any pharmaceutical company. We don't sell anything. We have no conflict of interest. And our goal, I mean, we, we landed, this was not our intention. We just, bedside doctors, and we, we were kind of pushed into the situation of helping patients. And, you know, we will do whatever we can, and we will continue to do whatever we can to help patients, because that's, that's what doctors are meant to do. And you know, I thank you so kindly because you 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 you're a pioneer out there who's willing to challenge the status quo and speak the truth. And you know what we're doing is we're just speaking the truth, mm-hmm. we're speaking the science, and we're speaking from the heart. You know, what's important? We have no vested interest. We're not selling anything. Right. We're just trying to help people.
0: Well, I mean, look, it takes one to know one. You are a pioneer. Uh, It's an honor to know you and, you know, any way we can help, any way that we can help as you move forward, um, there's a huge shift taking place. I believe that there's a brighter day for medicine ahead, a more transparent space that isn't afraid to look into all the different places where healing can take place, that isn't driven by dogma and certainly isn't driven by bureaucrats. Uh, Bureaucratic medicine will be the death of all of us. And and I think you represent that. No, I agree with
1: you. I think there's an alternative system emerging. I think there's now a body of people who become enlightened. And there are many of us similar-minded people who are coming together. And that's what we need to do because they are losing. And they are going to lose because the truth is on our side. And they are going to lose. So people need to decide which side you want to be, on the losing side or the winning side.
0: Amen to that. Dr. Paul Merrick. thank you so much for joining us today. It's such a pleasure. Thank you. Thank you.